0: Well, we're gonna have our main Bible now, which is that concluding chapter of Luke, Luke 24. So uh, I'm gonna read again from the ESV translation. Um, do you follow it with me if you're able to. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, starting at verse 1, it says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marvelling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you look, as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now fast spent. So he went in to stay with them. But when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him. And he vanished from the sight As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them have you anything here to eat they gave him a piece of broiled fish he took it and ate before them then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it is written that the christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. Just to say, there's an outline of the talk um, in your handout, so do make use of that as you see fit. Some people like to make notes to help them to concentrate and something to look back over in the week ahead. At the end of the talk, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions about what I said, or anything more about the passage, or make any comments. So um, that is there for you to anticipate. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is good, who is truthful, and who is sovereign over us, and therefore we pray, please, as we look at your word, that we might demonstrate who you are in our attitude to it. Please help us to pay careful attention, to uh, listen, and to trust, and to be obedient, Um, and therefore show that uh, we are your people and you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yours for the making is this year's Easter TV advert from Tesco. I wonder if you've seen it. It begins by asking, what's so great about Easter? And the answer that it provides is, oh, so predictable. Chocolate eggs, roast lamb dinner, Fluffy white bunnies. But an interesting part of the advert is the scene when the roast lamb has been served at the dining room table and one of the kids asks, where is Uncle Mike? Mum and Dad reply at the same time, but their answers are different. They try again, but again speak over one another and offer different reasons why Uncle Mike isn't there. The commentary provided in the ad helps the listener to understand. At Easter, you can choose who to invite. In contrast to, say, Christmas, where there is a whole host of expectations, including that the whole family get together, Easter, we are told, is yours for the making. Well, today, we conclude our series in Luke. And in his final chapter, chapter 24, Luke wants his readers to consider the resurrection of Jesus and its significance. The account begins with a number of women who went to Jesus's tomb to anoint his dead body. But they were met instead by these two angels. And have a look at what the angels say Let's pick it up from chapter 24, verse 5. 24, verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, and on the third day rise. I wonder, do you think that these words of the angel are words of encouragement or words actually of sharp correction? I think that these angels at the tomb address the woman with sharp words of correction, for their words highlight human ignorance. They remind the women of something Jesus' followers should not have forgotten, should not have forgotten. Jesus had told them that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise, chapter twenty four, verse seven. And this had been said while Jesus was still in Galilee. And as we've are regulars here as we've gone through Luke's gospel these past few months we know that to be true. So in Luke chapter 9 verse 22 that I read earlier Jesus said Luke 9:22 the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then later in Luke 9:44 he said let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And the angels, in Luke 24, their paraphrase is a a combination of these first two passion announcements of Jesus. Now, did you notice that the angels include that word, must, 24 verse 7? So the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. Now, it's a word that we first paid attention to when we first met it in Luke chapter 2. There Jesus said that he must be about his father's business because he is the Son. There's no question that he was going to do anything other than his father's will because that's what the Son does. And this language of must, appeared again and again in Luke's account. Each time its use was to repeatedly refer to the Father's purpose, which Jesus must fulfil, or at least in his suffering and him being raised. And since Jesus' words have now been fulfilled, they should be believed. Yet the empty tomb and the angel's announcement do not bring insight and faith. While the women remember Jesus' words and report what they've seen and heard to the 11 and the others, their report has no effect. It's regarded as an idle tale, verse 11. Nonsense. For the apostles do not believe the women. Well, presumably, at this point, the account could have proceeded directly to an appearance of the risen Jesus, which would have overcome this disbelief. Yet Luke does not choose this option, but introduces this lengthy account of the journey to Emmaus. And the Emmaus narrative serves to highlight a contrast. It's a contrast between human understanding, represented by the disciples, and God's way of working in Jesus. And the the account dramatises human blindness by presenting an ironic situation. The disciples do not recognise that they are trying to inform Jesus about Jesus. Pick it up from verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, the irony is strong as they rebuke Jesus for ignorance when they themselves do not understand. And they try to explain to Jesus at some length what he knows better than they. The key thing which the disciples have not understood but must now recognise is given in verse 26. Let's pick it up from verse 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now notice that Jesus does not speak here of being raised on the third day, but of entering his glory. Do you see that? End of verse 26. The interest then is not just in resurrection, but in Jesus' enthronement in glory as God's king. And actually, alongside his death and resurrection, this exaltation of Jesus has been anticipated in Luke. Uh, Luke. For example, Luke chapter 20, verse 17, we learned that the stone that the builders would reject would become the cornerstone. That in Luke chapter 20, David will call this one Lord. And in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, 69, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so when we get to Luke 24, 26, Jesus' prophecies of the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man are combined with the prophecies of his exaltation and enthronement in glory. Well, we might expect Luke's account to finish with Jesus's resurrection. A happy ending with them all together sharing a meal. But the story of God's purpose in the world is not complete with Jesus's resurrection. It includes the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Let's pick it up from verse 46. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice how the mission of the disciples relates to Jesus's own mission and the mission of um, John the Baptist. Because way back at the beginning of Luke, the speech of the angel Gabriel introduced John the Baptist who would turn many in Israel to God. And John's ministry of calling to repentance is then continued and amplified by Jesus. Now, the proclamation of repentance is to be taken to all the nations of the world. The similarities of the message of John, Jesus, and the apostles show that these persons share in a common mission that's now expanding to embrace the world. The mission should begin in Jerusalem, but must become universal in scope. We're witnessing here an important turning point in the story of this shared mission. For Jesus will no longer directly offer the forgiveness of sins to individuals. Jesus will be exalted to God's right hand. And it will be his witnesses who will offer the forgiveness of sins in his name. Notice too how Luke would have us understand that These things are happening in terms of fulfillment of God's promises. It's how Luke began his gospel back in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Reading Luke's account the way he intended it to be read is to see his account as an account of the things accomplished, that is, the things that have been fulfilled amongst them. And now, Jesus puts it all together. For he relates both his death and his resurrection and the proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the fulfilment of the scriptures. Verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the fact that his death and resurrection have been fulfilled, well, leads credibility to the other, the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Well, you might think we could end this sermon with a bit of a rant about how awful it is that Easter has become all about chocolate eggs and bunnies How we know the real meaning of Easter and lament what it's now become. But I'm not sure how committed we are to be in reclaiming Easter as a Christian festival. We've been thinking this morning about the significance of Jesus' resurrection and how it signals this turning point into the final phase of redemptive history, the proclamation of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. Of turning back to God. Of being forgiven by him. Because of Jesus. Now that is not what Easter is all about. But what this phase of redemptive history is all about. It's not something that we do at Easter. But it's the work that we're bound up in until Christ returns. And as God's people, we have the great privilege of participating in this work. And I think as I finish, I think it can helpfully be broken down into two. Accepting God's purpose, first for ourselves, and then secondly for others. Accepting God's purpose for ourselves is to repent. To be repentant. To turn from sin to God and receive his forgiveness because of the work of his son. And to bear the fruit of repentance, humility and forgiving one another. Accepting God's purpose for others, well, that's going to involve proclaiming and supporting the proclamation of this repentance to the world. Calling on people around us to repent that they too may be forgiven by God and encouraging them to bear the fruit of repentance. In many ways, it's not surprising the Easter commercial, champions chocolate eggs and bunnies this Easter time. But it is interesting, their tagline, yours for the making. An invitation to Easter is an event that you can fashion your own way. There's no call to repent, but to please yourself. And the tragedy, of course, of being unrepentant is not only do we reject God's purposes for ourselves, but we also obstruct and keep it from those around us. Let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you as we've been reading through the entire gospel that his resurrection comes exactly as he said it would. And that his resurrection is one in which he enters the glory of the Father as he is enthroned as your king. And we thank you that this repentance of which Jesus has been speaking about throughout his gospel, that same repentance is now entrusted to be proclaimed by his witnesses, starting at Jerusalem, but to the whole world. And we pray, please, that you would help us to understand your purposes, not least your purposes in calling for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Pray, please, for each of us here that we would accept your purposes for us and that we would repent. But pray also that we would accept your purposes for one another and that we would commit ourselves uh, to supporting and the proclamation of this repentance, um, as in according to this final phase in which you desire that people repent, to turn to you and be forgiven by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Does anybody want to ask a question to clarify something I've said? Or it's a slightly shorter reading today. So we have covered most of it, but if there was anything that I'm not commented on that you'd like to know about, you can ask. You might think and we said before if there are no questions it means one of two things everything's crystal clear and you understand or no one understands anything and just keep quiet got your own Bible. I think verses 46 and 47 are good ones to mark. Don't mark the church Bibles, but I think they're really um, very significant um, verses to see how Jesus puts together God's purposes. Go on, Susie. been too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, no, yes. Um, thanks, Susie. Let me just repeat the question for the recording. So um, we were thinking, well, I was uh, making a case for in Luke 24, the angel's word has been a rebuke. Uh, how fair is that, bearing in mind particularly It's interesting because it's those words that you quoted from Jesus in Luke 9, aren't there in Luke 9 um, 21, 22, but in that second um, prediction of of the events to follow in his death, um, even though Jesus says in 944, let these words sink into your ears, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, he does then say, but they did not understand, and it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it, and they're afraid to ask him about this saying It's an interesting theme about this concealing because it does seem, in many ways, I think that um, uh, helps us see this contrast between human understanding and understanding God's purposes is that we can't discern God's purposes unless God um, reveals those purposes to us. And here it's not simple enough to think, oh, God's purpose is that Jesus would die because everyone knows that Jesus died. The question is, what's Jesus' death got to do with the purposes of God? How does that? What does that? What does that sort of do? So I think I think my comment. Um, I think to be fair, yeah, there's something in, in what you say. I think my comment was more. Um, when we get to Luke twenty-four and the angels speak, we might be thinking Jesus is dead. Um, you know, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. Um, but, you know, we're sad. Basically, it's game over, and then ah, he rose and shock. It's kind of like, oh wow, and you know, he's got power over death, and there's a kind of a a twist to the tail, and there's a sudden kind of revelation. But it's just interesting the way that it's actually as us as readers have gone through it is that actually Jesus has been quite upfront in saying, The purposes of God is that I will die and then be raised. So the resurrection isn't, it's not the shock factor of, whoa, dead people don't raise, you know, what's going on here? This isn't supposed to happen. But that actually, if he's died, if, if we paid attention to Jesus, then we would know that he is raised. And so I think the disciples, so the angels, they are saying, Look, why, why are you here? That When he was with you, he told you that he would rise. So what are you doing um, so, I think, I think it was just to draw out that point that we're, um, this isn't just twists in the tail and it's like, well, what's going to happen next? But this is a, a carefully uh, prepared plan and purpose of the Father for His Son, which is now been fulfilled. And I think that also helps us to have confidence that we're not now running around thinking, what should we be doing? But we've, we've because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we've now moved to this final phase with the proclamation of um, repentance and forgiveness of sins. So, yeah, cool. Thanks, Susie. Anybody else? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, but it's also interesting with verse 27. You kind of think, oh, Luke, could you tell us a bit more? You know, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You think, oh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd quite like to have listened to that. But in many ways, that's what the, his disciples will unpack for us in the New Testament, in terms of actually how does that fulfilment goes on. And so, you know, not surprisingly, in his second book, Acts, there is a lot of Old Testament where they're showing precisely how the purposes have been um, fulfilled. But I think the promise fulfilment thing, I think, is really important because what was the thing that the, um, Adam and Eve doubted about God was God's truthfulness. Do you remember back in Genesis 3? God said, if you eat from a tree of knowledge of and evil, you will surely die they were deceived by the serpent, thinking that if they eat from a tree of of evil, they will not die. So right from the beginning of Genesis 3 and the fall, humanity has doubted the truth of God's word. Okay? And we're just prone to that. That's, that's the character of sin. Now, the promise-fulfillment motif really um, challenges that Because what we're seeing is that God's made promises and he's kept them. Therefore, what God says happens. It puts that back in our face. And that's very helpful for us because in our proneness to doubt God's words, truthful, actually to understand these events as God keeping his word, God doing what he said he would. In the same way he said, let there be light, there was light. All these things, death, resurrection, ascension, proclamation of the gospel, are all God doing what He said He would? That's why they must happen. It's it's, it's a necessity because that's who's God is. And so I think lit pastorally that's helpful because that helps us to to see where our confidence is in in the truth of God's word, and therefore to to align ourselves with that to, you know, to get on board and trust it. Good one. I mean, there is a tradition of three comments or questions, so last call. Anybody else want to? Go on, Josh. I do have a question, sort of on the back of Susie's question. Okay. Coming up to the defence yeah, so of the ladies. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if I to asked it, but I was just thinking 24, that 24 was 31, whether I was going to... Yes. Yeah, I mean, so just for the recording, so um, uh, verses like verse 30... Um, end of verse 32, or verse 32, uh, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us while he opened... Oh, no, not that bit. Where is it? Verse... verse 31. 31, sorry. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he vanished from the sight. And then again in verse 45 he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So I think it's it's a really good spot. And I think we said before that in Luke's gospel, no one really knows what's going on. Like Jesus knows what's going on, but the disciples and the crowds, they're all fairly clueless. They get little glimpses like Peter recognises that Jesus is the Christ, but doesn't really understand God's purposes for the Christ and is, is rebuked. And so you've got this confusion. And even when we looked at, remember last week, we looked in Mark's gospel, the cross. There's no one there in the crowds, like kind of giving a commentary of saying like, let me just explain what's going on. You know, like you might have in a, you know, a sports match of like, let's just, um, let's see what, what scriptures have been fulfilled here and how Jesus' death accomplishes salvation. No one knows what's going on. And so the, the only device that Mark has is to use that irony to record the cross in such a way that, um, although they're mocking him that he's a king, actually he really is the king and actually his death is the means of his enthronement. So that whole literary device of irony is is, is, is how Mark tries to help the reader to think, this is really what's going on here. Um, But here, we're beginning to see a transition to the disciples' understanding, but that's absolutely crucial because I mentioned before is that so far Jesus has been personally offering the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's met with people, he's forgiven them, and welcomed them into the kingdom of God. But Jesus is going away, and we know in John's gospel that's actually for their benefit. The Spirit will come, and therefore his disciples will be the witnesses they're going to be the ones who are now proclaiming, and that's now us. We are the ones who know God's purposes of, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So, um, But here, it's important that they understand it because if they're going to be the witnesses, they need to know what's going on. So I think in that sense, we're expecting this movement, and that links really nicely with Luke's second book because then you see Pentecost, Peter stands up, and he, 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 now, he now understands God's purposes, not only for himself, but he can explain them for other people that they would then kind of get on in line. So I think in many ways, this whole um, opening of eyes, it makes a lot of sense when we think about the, this turning point in the phase of redemptive history. Now his death or resurrection, if the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the whole world, then it's, it's going to be imperative that the witnesses understand the scriptures and therefore can proclaim it. Um, and I think, presumably, that comes as a... I mean, depending on how you want to think about it, either an encouragement or rebuke to us, that we need to, we need to know God's purposes clearly, not only for ourselves, but we can explain them to others. So we, we rely on God's help to understand that, but that's the thing, the task we want to be working at so that we, we, we really get this, not just for us, because... That's, that's, that's the privileged task that we've been given. So, is that okay? Cool. All right, let's leave it there. Um, do keep chatting after our meeting with one another. We're going to sing um, another song, which um, is a bit more of a response. So, uh, by all means, don't sing it if um, these aren't your words, but if they are, then um, let's stand and sing, Oh Great God.